And I'm a youth organizer who teaches sex ed. And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula. We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA and a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories. We are talking today with Adrienne Crawford, who is a certified nurse midwife. She's also a lactation consultant, and she works in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area currently and provides a pretty full range of healthcare services to folks in that tri-state area. We chat with her about her scope of practice, how she is able to provide abortion care, and also what limitations she faces in her role as a nurse midwife, depending on what state she is practicing in. We also talk with her about COVID-19 and how the overall fears and anxieties of this time have really impacted the choices that folks are making or hoping to make around their pregnancies and bodies. I also want to pull out the relationship between this episode and the episode that we did with Molly Dutton Kenny. Uh, we really wanted to talk to two different providers, one of whom was operating primarily in the home, which would be Molly Dutton Kenny. You should check that episode out if you haven't already. And uh, and then talking with Adrienne Crawford, who is primarily working in a clinic, because what a lot of folks don't realize about SMA is that uh, there are there's so it's such a spectrum of stories and when i first learned about self managed abortion i thought it was a matter of buying pills online and then the person would just literally do everything on their own and the truth is that that just like any other experience there's no one tagline and i think mm-hmm. i like how this episode complicates the story of how people get abortion pills and who the players are in supporting those people in yeah. self-managing. And there are many. So okay. many. Many. Yeah. Adrian. Yeah. Um, question number one. Could you tell us when you first learned what an abortion was or what an Ooh. early conversation about abortion looked like? When did I learn about abortion? I, huh. I actually have never thought about this. When was it that I learned about what abortion was? So I I remember, so my first job out of undergrad, um, God, this is, I'm going to age myself. Um, This was 1998, 1998, yeah. Um, And I applied for a position as a counselor um, at Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta. Um, 
which freestanding abortion clinic is still kind of up and functioning and in existence today. And it's a lot of my, myself and my really good friends, you know, we were 20 something and thought we knew everything and we're ready to take over the world. And so um, a friend of mine had gotten a position there doing something. I don't even know what she was doing there. Um, but I remember when I heard about the position, I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And so I don't, I don't actually abortion. What did I? I don't remember having an aha moment. It seems like abortion has just been always something that's there. It's like, oh, what did you learn about pap smears? It's like, it's just a thing. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily remember having a space where I, I will say this, in my family, in my upbringing, it was never this controversial thing that, you know, folks had a, a position on. It wasn't a word that we couldn't say in my house. I think it was just a thing. I remember when I took the position at Feminist Women's Health Center, um, I talked to my mom about it because, you know, in the late 90s, definitely that was the age of like bulletproof vests, the providers were going in and bulletproof glass and like sheriffs and like picketers. And I remember wanting to have this conversation with her about, you know, um, you know, this kind of new endeavor I was taking on as a, you know, a new graduate and you know, ready to take over the world and wanted her to not be concerned about my safety. And I remember my mom just, you know, after she I explained everything to her and she said in her very Southern draw, don't make me come down and kick them people's ass about my baby, you know? So that was only a <laughs> response you know, about my decision to, to kind of work in that um, environment. When from that point on did the light bulb of, Oh, actually, I want to be a, a care provider. So very quickly after my experience there. So I, um, so I was there from 1998 to maybe 2001 full time. I, I can't remember, but I remember, and I had fresh out of undergrad, had an undergraduate degree in psychology, and um, I went into undergrad thinking that I wanted to do, like, sex therapy, and then very quickly I realized, no, that's not what I wanted to do, and somewhere during that time, um, I attended my first birth with a really good friend of mine, and then I think my experience at Feminist Women's Health Center made me realize, oh, huh, I don't know what how I would define what this career is going to look like, but it needs to be something around this. I don't even think I really knew what a midwife did or was at that point. Maybe I did. Maybe I was just kind of starting to develop, but in Georgia, midwives were not doing abortion. So I definitely wasn't thinking I want to be a midwife to kind of provide abortion care. Um, and I would say maybe about two years into it, yeah, less than that maybe, I realized I want to do this work. And I don't know what capacity. Um, I think I thought initially nursing school. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a physician. Like, that's not the direction I wanted to go. Um, and I think the more that I learned about the type of care that midwives can provide and how the whole idea about being a midwife means just being with women. I knew that I was like, Oh yeah, that's the, that's what I need to do. So for me, midwifery has never been about the babies ever. It's like, Oh, they're this cute, like byproduct of a certain aspect, 
but it's never been like, oh, I want to catch all the babies. Like that is really good, <laughs> right? But it's also really cool supporting someone who's getting an IUD. It's also really cool supporting somebody who's, you know, having an abortion. So the baby is not like the money shot for me. Like it's 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 a piece of it, but I I get the same level of like, wow, I'm really doing some really good work here with all aspects of it. So um, that's an interesting conversation between you know, within the midwifery community. And I think outside of it is when you think of midwife, you think of, oh, you deliver babies. Or well, I don't even like deliver because pizzas are delivered. Babies are, are caught. Um, but I, I, yeah, sure. That's an aspect of what I do. But I think it's a really narrow, narrow lens. If you look at midwives as people who are solely providing, um, who are birth, who are birth workers. I mean, we are, but there's, we have such a tremendous scope of practice and such a huge um, spectrum of um, healthcare that we can provide. So I think, you know, I sat in that place of like, huh, don't want to be a nurse. Okay. Nursing feels cool, but uh, I don't want to be a physician. Shout out to all the bomb OBGYNs because we need you. We love you all the things, but like, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. And I, I think I stumbled upon midwifery because I read this book called Listen to Me Good, and it's about a grand midwife in Alabama. Um, and I was like, oh, okay then. And then I think I stumbled upon um, Spiritual Midwifery. And there was a couple of other books. And I was like, oh, okay. And so for a while, um, you know, abortion was kind of like over here like it was still very much in the periphery for me but um I, I began to get really focused on like going to midwifery school and what that looked like and um finishing midwifery school and all the things that you have to do and pieces of your soul that you have to sell to to kind of get through it but um when I finished midwifery school I was working um came, moved here to D.C. I went to school in California, moved back to D.C. Um, and I was working, it's considered full scope midwifery. And basically that means that you are taking care of folks for, you know, prenatal and birth and postpartum and newborn care and lactation support and, you know, family planning and, you know, infection testing and well woman exam and breast exam, all those things. But I realized really quickly that like, I missed abortion work. Like I missed the idea. And so for me, I was like, oh, this actually isn't full scope if we're leaving out an aspect of women's health, right? Like it's not full scope if we're not talking about women who have gotten pregnant and don't want to be or can't be or choose not to be. That's not really full scope for me. So um, I left that full-time position and I'm still there um, kind of PRN part-time-ish, and then I went to another organization here in Maryland um, doing um, uh, medication abortions. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of piecemealing what full scope looks like for me, right? Like I spend two days a week, you know, doing, you know, mostly prenatal and GYN stuff. And then I spend three, two to three days a week um, doing abortion work. And it would be lovely if it could be all under one umbrella like they do in the Fantastic Choices Clinic in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, but we are not. Um, we have not got to that place here in the DMV mm. where everything happens in one house. Um, and why so, exactly is that? Is it just pure legislation? And yes. 
And is it scope of practice with nurse midwifery? They're like, nah, you can't really do all this. No, but so nurse midwives, so we take a board, we take, you know, it's a national board that our scope of practice is this, we all have the same scope of practice. Now, how you can practice is dependent on what state you live in, you know? So um, it's really, really ridiculous. So I will say in California, I went to school, DC and maybe New York, we function as the most autonomous. Like in DC, I don't have to have a supervising physician, like oversee my charts and say what I can and cannot do or really dictate that, you know, in a hospital setting, midwives are considered attendings. And so we function in that same way because we know what our scope of practice is and we work within that. And if there's something that's higher risk or something that's outside of our scope, we can collaborate with our physician partners there. Or if it's something that's completely out of our scope, then we can transfer care. But like, I don't have to have, there's not a physician that's telling me, I need you to, you know, you have to do this. I'm going to sign off in your charge. That doesn't exist. That's in DC. In Maryland, working as an abortion provider, I work underneath our medical director. Now, that doesn't mean that he ever, ever comes in and sees the patients or sees the charts or do any of that thing, but the same things that I can do, you know, in in D.C., you go on the block, you know, three blocks, and in Maryland, and I can't. So um, it's really dependent on, so answer the question, we all have the same scope of practice. Um, this is something that we all can do. Now, if you would if you choose to, that's a complete other concept. There's things, there's other aspects of healthcare that I may not do. I don't do endometrial biopsies, not because it's not in my scope of practice, but one, I haven't had the training and that's something I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do this. You know, I don't do colposcopies. Um, is it in my scope of practice? Yes. Is that something that I want to do? Mm, not really. You know, so someone <laughs> can do that. So um, is it in our scope? Yes. Do we have to receive additional training for it? Yes. Is that training sometimes difficult to find? I mean, I think abortion work in general, um, which is what makes the medication abortion such a fantastic option for women because everyone has training on on swallowing a pill, right? I don't need any special training on, you know, supporting someone and swallowing, a, you know, a certain amount of pills. Um, but yeah, it's with abortion in general, I think aspiration procedures, there's more and more difficulty in finding um, clinical experiences for not just, you know, advanced practice nurses, but um, for med students as well. It's becoming like a dying art. And so I was fortunate enough to do an elective um, shadowing my um, nurse midwife um, professors in, you know, laminary insertion and mm-hmm. um, first trimester procedures and that kind of thing. I'm really curious about, you mentioned that your sort of ideal home for your practice would be a clinic that, that looked like the one in Tennessee that offers really full spectrum care. And I was wondering, you know, we were really excited, Antonia and I, to have, uh, we act, you're actually our second midwife that we're interviewing on the podcast on abortion care because we wanted to get the perspectives of one midwife who worked in a in-home practice and one who worked in a clinical setting. And I was curious about what makes, why you feel like the ideal home for you is in a, looks like a clinic uh, and what you think the pros and cons of a home care practice versus a clinical practice are. Are we we talking about specifically in relationship to abortion or women in general in abortion? So, I mean, I think I I don't, let me think about that. Um, For me, it's just about options. I feel like in a clinic setting, you have more options to more equipment to provide more services. Now for folks who are just choosing 
um, a medication abortion, I mean, I think it happens at home anyway. So regardless of where the medication is initiated, the process is happening at home. So um, <clears throat> I don't, I, I, again, for me, it's about, it allows more options for the women who are coming in in need of this service. At home, there's limitations to what I can do. In a clinic setting, um, there's a wider range of options in terms of the abortion types that can be provided. Is there like a middle space between clinic and at home? Are you liaisoning at all with folks who are in rural parts of... Yeah, so we we are doing so at the organization now at our nonprofit. We are doing a lot of telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Um, the process looks a little bit different. They may have, depending on you know what their medical history indicates, they may have certain blood testing that's done. Um, really, just you know, depending on the gestation, do they know their blood type? Are they anemic? Are we concerned about those pieces? And having ultrasounds in their community, and then they will have the um, kind of the intake, if you will, <clears throat> on the phone with one of the providers and then everything is shipped out to them so we do kind of that that feels like a little bit of like acting as a broker right between like completely being at home and kind of being in the clinic and especially now we're seeing more telemedicine visits because um folks aren't wanting to come out and we're like fantastic because we don't necessarily want you to come out you know either so um Mm. imagine somebody you know being um you know self-quarantining because someone in their family is positive or they have tested positive and they are now pregnant, right? And don't want to be pregnant. And do I wait 14 days? Because that could be the difference between me being able to have this abortion and me not. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, we are definitely having to think of a lot more um, what I would consider, you know, women-centered um, practices and, you know, there's some things about how we're practicing now that I don't like. And there's some things about how we're practicing that I really like and don't want to change, you know, after, you know, this kind of ban on sheltering in place has been lifted. Because some things I think are allowing people to, um, you know, we're even looking at this idea of no-touch abortion where folks aren't having ultrasounds at all. You know, if you meet mm-hmm. certain criteria and you know, are not high risk for having an ectopic pregnancy because that's what we're really concerned about, you know, in the gestation, you know, the pregnancy, those are things we're most concerned about with medication abortion. But if you don't have a history of ectopic and, you know, don't have a history of, you know, untreated boundary and chlamydia that's turned into PID and don't have a history of, you know, irregular periods and, you know, some of the other criteria that has to be met, you know, the likelihood that you would have an ectopic pregnancy is like, one to two percent and so do we make all women have an ultrasound because of the one to two percent that could potentially have an ectopic i think that's the question so there's lots of really good evidence that's come out um from math included that says yeah you don't really have to do that if they meet these certain criteria so yeah we we are looking at um providing services that um Again, it's the the quality of the care is is just as high, but um, there's certain pieces that we're looking at putting mm-hmm. on hold. So I'm I would love to hear just hear a little bit more about how you understand COVID to be changing the landscape of abortion access and just abortion in general. My God, so. I, you know, there's things about how this virus is impacting people, specifically with abortion work, that I did not even fathom. Like, I didn't even think of my, I thought initially, like, oh, folks are going to have a hard time getting out. 
Yeah. People's decision around continuing pregnancies is changing. And I have had what I'm seeing the most is women coming in at earlier gestations. Um, most folks will typically come in between six to eight-ish weeks, somewhere around that. That's when the majority of our clients would fall. But I'm seeing a lot of people coming in um, where I, I can't identify or see anything in the ultrasound because you're so early. You have a positive pregnancy test, but I don't even see the pregnancy because based on your last period, um, you're maybe your period was supposed to be you know, today or yesterday. You're one day late. And the reason that I'm hearing is that I was afraid that you guys weren't going to be open. I was afraid that you guys were going to be considered non-essential because it's happening. That shit is happening in Texas. It's happening in Ohio. It's happening in states where abortion is considered non-essential. And I'm like, what the hell else is more essential and more time sensitive than an abortion and someone not being pregnant when they don't want to be? So a lot of women are coming in incredibly early in pregnancy. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying I think that the fear around, um, well, I, I take that back. I think there's something wrong with it if women haven't had an opportunity to really explore um, how they feel about being pregnant um, and are coming in and making fear-based decisions. You know, like I I had a client said, I would have thought about this a little bit longer, but I was worried that you weren't going to be here. And even after me reassuring and say, hey, no, we don't have any plans on going anywhere at all. That's that's not what's happening. You know, she's like, yeah, so I'll go ahead and take that feet now. You know, I've had women, I had a couple who came in probably the first week. So maybe this has been about three weeks ago. You know, this was a planned pregnancy. This was a desired pregnancy. They had gone through IVF, not for this current pregnancy, gone through IVF maybe maybe three months before, lost that pregnancy, and then spontaneously got pregnant. And they were thrilled about the pregnancy. And then COVID happened, and they were terrified. And the husband lost his job. Um, the wife was kind of working part time but not enough to kind of financially support them and they just felt really scared about the direction that you know things were happening in the world and they made a decision to terminate the pregnancy like it's 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 you know women are making decisions about you know around larks i have put in more iud i cannot even tell you Mm. you know more iud's and and next bonans because women are afraid of like is this what can i i don't want to i am number one stuck in the house with my partner and we're having sex great and typically withdrawal or fertility awareness or whatever method they were using that wasn't long i think was cool but now i'm afraid i definitely don't want to get i definitely don't want to get pregnant right now so um it's changing. It's changing people's ideas around, you know, contraception. It's changing people's ideas around getting pregnant. It's changing people's idea around continuing pregnancies. And I feel like I'm seeing more women who, um, you know, are saying like, I'm, I'm afraid that I would, again, I would give myself a little bit more time to think about this, but I'm afraid you won't be here next week. I'm afraid you won't be here in 10 more days. Um, and as a provider, it's a really hard place, right? Because it's not my job to determine if your reasons for having an abortion are valid. But I do feel like it's part of my responsibility to kind of help make sure, have you come to this decision because this is what you have deemed is best for you and you're not feeling any external pressure? What about when that external pressure is the world, right? And like what's happening in the world? And it's not like a partner in the house who's saying, you know, you can't keep this pregnancy. It's shit. Look what they're doing in Ohio and Texas and closing abortion clinics. What if that's the pressure? You know, what if that's what's contributing to like women making this decision sooner than they would? It's, um, it's, an, it's, 
I don't, I don't, my, my, my vocabulary isn't expansive enough, but I need another word for, it's insane. And, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way for the women who are making these decisions, but just that like, this is what we've come to and this is where we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sigh says exactly. so much. Uh, I think being pregnant unexpectedly is hard enough. Yeah. Um, but especially when you're not sure if the access to the services that you are going to need are going to be considered essential and are going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be able to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you earlier described that birth and abortion care exist on one continuous spectrum. And... I know that DC has some of the most dramatic racial inequalities in this country when it comes to birth outcomes. Are you seeing the same kinds of disparities showing up in abortion care in the DC area? And then how is COVID affecting this? How much time you got? Um, no, so, <laughs> so I think when you're looking at communities that are historically marginalized, anything that's impacting the majority of folks is going to impact us more. Um, You know, I've been Black a real long time. This is not anything new for me. And, you know, I see in my communities, um, you know, even if we're just looking at the virus and how it's impacting Black people specifically, it's not necessarily that we're acquiring the, the disease at higher rates, but the mortality is much more significant for us. And I think that we can't have those conversations about the whys until we have conversations about the systemic racism that allowed to some of these pre-existing conditions that allowed the virus to be more, you know, impactful. So I, we literally don't have time to do that. But what I will say is that... Um, you know, in terms of, I guess, how the virus is impacting community of, communities of color and um, access to reproductive care, um, I, I think a couple things. I think, one, if you have resources, and when I say resources, I mean money, um, you can get an abortion. You can get one, you know, doesn't matter. Let's say I live in Texas and, you know, they have restricted abortion um, for the bullshit reasons that they offered. Um, yeah, but if I have resources, I'm gonna just go ahead and fly over to Louisiana. I'm gonna fly over to my geography's bad. I don't know what's on the other side of Texas, but what, you know, I can fly or I can get somewhere else. You know, if I'm someone who was limited by my resources, if I live somewhere where abortion access has been restricted, I just have to be pregnant. Now, that doesn't mean that this, you know, this environment that is, you know, restricted abortion is going to offer me additional support to carry this baby to term or to take care of this baby once it's here, once it's here. And that's the thing that's so interesting about the whole anti-choice, you know, movement anyway, but I'm going to not get on that right now. I'm going to stay where I am. Um, but yeah, there's not being additional support that's, that's given to these folks who are forced to continue these pregnancies. Um, it's just a restriction on abortion. So it's not like pro-woman, pro-child, pro-family. That's bullshit yeah. because you don't give a damn about these babies once they're here. You just want to restrict the option for women to have them. And it's about, you know, it's, it's completely about control. But anyway, yes. Do I see black folks navigating this differently and having more difficulties? Absolutely. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And again, if you have resources, cool. You know, if there's a restriction that happens here in, in Maryland or in D.C. and Virginia, which I, I do think that's going to happen because I think we're fortunate enough where we live, you know, in this urban area and those things. Are, but, you know, what about outside of Georgia? You know, what about what about there's certain rural parts um, in, in Illinois? What about all these other places? Yeah. Folks who have resources can fly somewhere else or drive somewhere else. Folks who don't can't. It's super scary. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and I think, and, and I will say that most of the women who are coming in and are very early are black women yeah. because mm -hmm. I don't have the choice to go somewhere else. If y'all are closed or unable to provide these services, it's not just an idea. I'm just going to drive to Pennsylvania. Who? When? With what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, and, and they're not all, they are not all black women. I will absolutely say that. But what I will say, the majority of them are black women or women of color who are saying like, I don't have the luxury of, and it feels like a luxury, right? To be able to really consider your pregnancy options. When did that shit become a luxury? But I don't have yeah. the luxury of really sitting with this as long as I would like to, because I'm afraid one of like, again, what what's happening in the world with COVID? Is it going to be, even if you all are, you know, can maintain, you know, the status as being essential personnel. Am I going to be able to get out of the house? Is it going to be more difficult for me to get out of the house? I don't have time to think about this. I found out I'm pregnant now. I'm having an abortion now. And it's not, you know, um, even, even with all of that, like I still feel honored and humbled at the resiliency of women um, and navigating these tremendously difficult choices especially at a time where everything else in the world feels so crazy right it's one thing to be like oh i have this unplanned pregnancy but like i can go sit you know outside with my girlfriends and we talk about and you kind of help me process this you can't do any of that shit so now you're really isolated in something that already feels isolating you know so it's um i am completely um humbled at the strength and just the resiliency that women consistently have to have to have and have to show and um mm -hmm. yeah totally i wanted to um wrap up with the same question that we end all of our interviews with mm -hmm. which is um if you were standing at the top of a building mm -hmm. with a megaphone mm -hmm. and you could shout one message down to the crowds below all the people in the crowds are social distancing Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say into that megaphone? There's a couple of things that come up for, for me. Um, there's the snarky, you know, Adrian response. It's like, mind your uterus, mind your damn business. You know, there's a one thing that comes <laughs> up, you know, and then there's another piece that like, I feel like what I would hope that will come through this is that although it feels forced, like recognizing each other's humanity and respecting the fact that we are all navigating this together and that um, at no other time do we need to remember that, you know, while it feels like we are kind of functioning in a bubble right now, we really aren't. And we really are like in this whole thing together. And that this is not the time to disengage from 
the people who are going through this with you. Finding different, more creative ways to engage and to kind of remember that we really are in this together. Um, but my fear is that this disengaging thing that's happening is going to like spill out and spill over and we're going to be further removed from each other and not have the village mentality that quite frankly, I think that we don't have and need to have. So um, maybe Majo business is one. <laughs> and on the other side, just, I just would scream humanity. Like we, we're not going to get through this mm. by ourselves. And that's it for this episode. We want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them. If you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, a friend, family member, or colleague, please share this episode with them. Our goal is to demystify this conversation, and what that takes is talking about it. Head over to our website, smapodcast.org, to get the resources discussed in this interview, as well as the transcript which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one.